0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, The Price of Victory. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 19 to 21 as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Repentance and the Holy Life.
1: There are some sections of scripture that are often passed over quite quickly but contain treasures that we often sadly miss. 2 Corinthians 12, 19-21 is just such a section. It's a short passage of Scripture, and it seems to come at the end of a longer set of instructions. And if we pass by this text, however, we're going to miss one of the key functions of pastoral leadership. You know, I'll explain, but let's read our text. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, but perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. You know, in this short passage, Paul defines the central issue of his ministry. He's seeking the holiness of God's people. You know, in our day, when pastors are often thought of as everything from CEOs to counselors to facilitators to politicians and entrepreneurs and entertainers, Paul helps us to understand what true Christian leadership entails. Pastors are to lead their people in holiness. Romans 14, 10 to 12 tells us that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And Paul's writing Christians when he says that. And then he says, so that each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. And in 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul says something very similar. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. See, there's a day coming when believers will give a full accounting of their lives. Of course, this judgment is not a judgment unto damnation. It's a judgment unto rewards. But still, knowing this to be the case, we live our lives in such a way so that we might please the Lord. But there is another possibility. When we come to the last chapter of 2 Corinthians, that is chapter 13, verse 5, Paul will urge all of us to test ourselves if we are truly in the faith. It may be that some of the attitudes or actions we find in ourselves are not consistent with the life of someone who's been saved. So what then is the role of a faithful pastor? Well, it's the role that oversees the holiness of God's people. Faithful pastors lovingly lead their people to repentance when that's required. Faithful pastors are called upon to direct the growth of holiness in all of God's people. It's their primary role. So let's see how Paul exemplifies that role for us in the passage that we've just read. Let's start with the first half of verse 19. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? I don't know about you, but that's what I've been thinking. I mean, for close to three chapters now, Paul has been defending his ministry against the attacks of the false teachers and of those in the Corinthian church who stubbornly continued to be their followers. These people have been making attacks against Paul. and We've also noticed that key leaders should have defended Paul, but they hadn't but they'd simply remain silent. And so Paul has been defending himself as the church has provided him with no defenders. Now that his defense is done, he asks, do you think all along that, you know, what I'm doing is defending myself again? You know, we're staring at Paul almost in disbelief. Yes, Paul, that's what we think you've been doing. But then Paul explains his question in the latter part of this verse. It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Now it becomes clear. Yeah, he's been defending himself, but not for the sake of himself. He says the only reason he's done this is so that the Corinthians would be built up. It's an image of being built up. It's, it's the image of a building, perhaps a house. It's in the process of being built, but, but the project hasn't been completed, and there's a real danger here that the house that was started would then be a project that was abandoned. And so the house now stands as a monument of what might have been, but never came to fruition. See, I don't know if you've ever driven by such a house. started many years earlier, but now it stands crumbling in the elements. It's experienced rain and snow and the sun beating down on it in the summer. The walls are rotting away. It looks like it's impossible to ever complete this project. Neglect has caused too much damage. Paul said, had I not defended myself, this would have been the state of your lives. And so as God has watched me and as Christ has directed me, I made my defense with that goal in mind. It was never someone has slandered me and I won't take that lying down. No, no, that's not it. Rather, it's always been that I knew I needed to do this so that you would not be misled by false teachers and that you would not have been like an uncompleted house that stands falling apart in the rain. Have you ever met a man or a woman who has once started in the faith and then just left off, incomplete, unfinished? Faith has eroded away. Old lifestyle forms have crept back. You know, I once met a man that way. Years earlier, under my ministry, he appeared to have given his life to Christ, and then came that time in his life when his temptation to commit adultery had overwhelmed him. He gave in, left his wife, refused to repent, witnessed the destruction of his marriage, left his church, and abandoned the Lord. I bumped into him quite unexpectedly. He was coming out of a coffee shop, and I was going in. I looked at him and greeted him. Although I had been a part of his life, a very close part, he appeared not to recognize me at all. I had to explain who I was, and he only gradually became aware, and then it got awkward, and we bid each other farewell, and I wept over what had become of him. Paul says to the church in Corinth, the reason I fought like a tiger to defend myself was because I knew what would happen should the false teachers win. Do you think I was defending myself for my sake? And then having said that, Paul stresses what was really at stake. There are two verses that tell us what he was fighting for, and as we examine them today, you're going to notice that Paul begins each verse with the words, I fear. I know in today's world of constant bravado. Some of us think that it's a sign of unbelief or lack of faith for the Apostle Paul to say, I'm overcome by fear. But consider what he fears. It has indeed happened in numerous times in the past. John six sixty to 66 John tells us of a number of disciples who had been following Jesus, but then turned back when the things Jesus was teaching became too difficult for them. They simply abandoned Jesus. You might also remember that on that occasion, Jesus asks the twelve if they also want to leave, and it's Peter who steps to the fore and says, but where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We also know that in Galatians 1, verse 6, Paul, speaking to the Galatian Christian, says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And we also know that later, among Paul's own missionary team, he would write 2 Timothy 4, verse 10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, Paul says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. See, it's not a lack of faith that leads Paul to say the words, I fear. And in truth, faithful pastors have all expressed the same. I fear. Faithful pastors labor hard, teaching, preaching, exhorting, encouraging, loving, and praying for they fear that all their labors might have been in vain. It's not a fear inspired by unbelief. It's a fear with an understanding of the battle that lies before every believer. It's a recognition that every godly pastor has, that they will give account before God as to whether or not they've protected the flock from the wolves. And that's one of the reasons why we should be praying for our pastors as they are praying for us. If your pastor is godly, he knows his role, and he knows what's at stake. Paul says, I fear. And then he gives the first content of his fear. You know, I might come to Corinth and not find you as I wish. See, in Paul's mind, he bears an image of what spiritual maturity looks like. Writing to Galatians, he says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Now, each of these marks of the Spirit grow gradually throughout the lifetime of a believer. Good pastors are aware of what spiritual maturity looks like, and they're also fully aware that they must fight hard against the opposite, what Paul calls the fruit of the flesh. And so Paul says, I fear I might not find this in you. That is, when I arrive, and if you're not growing in holiness, it won't be a joyful reunion that I have wanted. Both you and I want so much that my third visit is not a painful one, as was my second one. We want to get together and worship and celebrate, and also to speak about how we can minister to the hard-pressed Christians in Jerusalem. And then we want to turn our attention west and think about the gospel in Spain. All of this is what I want. I fear it might not be so.
0: For anyone seeking to know God or to understand the Bible and how it can be applied to your daily life, Back to the Bible Canada provides trustworthy Bible teaching resources addressing relevant questions of life and faith. If you believe in the importance of sharing the Word of God across our nation, perhaps you'd consider offering a financial gift to support Back to the Bible Canada this month. Or consider even becoming a member of our 1119 Fellowship, our monthly giving program. Your regular gift ensures that the daily Bible teaching program you're hearing right now is heard in your community and across the country. Your gift of any amount allows the Word of God to reach those searching for truth. To send a one-time gift or to become an 1119 monthly partner, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: In the last verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul gives a list of things that can happen to a church and, for that matter, to individual Christians when the wheels start to fall off. I have a sense that all Christians are either growing in holiness or they're growing in carnality. We're never standing still. We're going in one direction or another. In verse 20, we find eight words, eight descriptors of what Paul fears might have happened when he comes to Corinth for the third time. These eight items, and we're going to consider each of them one at a time, they deal with interpersonal problems that have led to such a disunity in the church in the past. And then when we get to verse 21, Paul will give a second list, which will deal with three sexual sins, interpersonal sins, then sexual sins. So let's start with the interpersonal ones, the ones that cause believers to divide and mistrust and break up a local church. Number one is quarreling. The Greek word can also mean strife or contention. In his earlier letter, Paul had already made mention of the four separate factions that were dividing the church. You remember one group said they supported Paul, the next that they supported Apollos, the third they supported Peter, and the fourth, well, they would accept no pastoral oversight whatsoever, they simply followed Jesus. In the Greek, the word translated as quarreling almost always refers to verbal quarreling, that is, always saying negative things about others, never having a good thing to say about someone else. It's the kind of talk that always tends towards, you know, the darker picture in someone else, quarreling. Number two, jealousy. And I love to call this the green monster that tends to live within each of us. You know, it's the concern that someone has something that we don't possess, and it leads to resentment. Perhaps someone else is receiving praise for something we believe should have come our way. James 3, verse 14 says that jealousy is demonic wisdom. Seeing the success of another makes us hardly able to countenance being in their presence. Number three, anger. The Greek word indicates intense anger. The implication is that there are passionate outbursts. You could also translate this as fury. Paul means that he fears that the factions that were present in Corinth and that had been allowed to exist for such a long period of time would finally lead to an unbridled, passionate fury of shouting and screaming at each other. The Bible does not say that all anger is wrong. We're told, be angry, but do not sin. That is, there can be a righteous anger, especially when the glory of God is being denigrated. It is an anger that wishes for things to be put right. But here's an anger that seeks the destruction of the other. It's related to temper. We know in marital situations, that leads to abuse, physical assaults. That is, the person is no longer in control. The anger controls. In our day, we call that person someone who's got a short temper. If this happens in a church, we can only imagine that opportunities for reconciliation are erased. That peaceful, arenic spirit finds no place among us. Everyone seeks to outdo the other in making hostile statements. Number four is hostility. It naturally follows both jealousy and anger. Some translations translate this word as rivalry. Everyone's trying to outdo the other. No one's rejoicing in the accomplishments of the other. They're not praising the other for their progress. Number five and number six, I put those two words together. They're slander and gossip. These two are the chief of the sins of the tongue. Let me say a bit about slander. For as we know, Revelation 12 verse 10 calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. There can be no doubt that those who accuse others are often motivated by the prince of darkness himself. It was slander that was used to nail Jesus to the cross. It was slander that was used to have Paul arrested with the attempt to have him executed. The false teachers were slandering Paul in Corinth. James 4.11 specifically warns us not to speak evil of one another. Slander is speaking evil of the other, and gossip, which Paul lists next, is the repetition of these evil words so that everyone hears. Here's a lesson we all need to learn. A great many Christians don't understand the definition of truth. So-and-so takes advantage of people, we say. That's slander. If someone has taken advantage of someone in some way, that matter is a matter of church discipline in which the alleged indiscretion is thoroughly investigated, and then the truth of the situation can be ascertained from objective evidence that is before us. On the other hand, slander is an allegation which is presented as if it were true. And the reason why slander is so frequently used is because it's so very effective, Pastors have been fired due to slander. Reputations have been lost due to slander. Lives have been crushed due to slander. And in each case, the one who slanders is on the side of the evil one. Beware my brothers and sister that these things are not said of us. Number seven, conceit. This is an exaggerated view of one's own importance. And then finally, number eight, disorder. This is the rise of defiance and the spirit of lawlessness. It says, no one tells me what to do. And without submission to the leadership that God has put into place, how can there be unity? You know, what's interesting is we look at these eight sins of the flesh that we now see, that Paul has legitimate fears that the Corinthians had not dealt with these matters in the past. And when these matters are not seen as matters of great importance, then these matters are allowed to flourish, just like the most robust of weeds in a garden or a field. Eventually, these weeds kill all that is good, and eventually, these weeds own the garden. Godly living demands we fight these attitudes of the heart. Pastors, elders, church leaders, be warned that these attitudes are not found in us. Now, let's go to verse 21, because these verses might seem surprising. It's now the second time Paul uses the word fear. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. So why would Paul be humbled if the Corinthians exhibited these behaviors? And I think the answer is that Paul's been laboring among these believers for a long time now. He's the wise builder who's been building faith in that church. Was all of this work in vain? Because where these attitudes are allowed to exist and flourish, there can be no genuine faith. What if this is what Paul finds when he comes to Corinth for the third time? It would mean that he's been laboring in vain. See, unless the Lord builds the house, the people labor in vain. Could it be, asks Paul, that of all my work that I've expended, it was all in vain because the Lord was not in it? You know, in our day, we tend to discount that kind of logic. What pastor can be responsible for the spiritual well-being of his people? They are what they are. And of course, not all things are in the pastor's control, but pastors are called upon to exercise influence both before the people and before God in prayer on behalf of those who are entrusted to them. Now then, Paul speaks about a persistent problem that he fears was not yet resolved in Corinth. He's speaking about sensuality, and Corinth was a sensual city. Because of its wealth and because it was the center of an international trade route, because of the many temples dedicated to temple prostitutes, sensuality simply filled the city. And it had been true that a great many of the Corinthian Christians were sensual before their conversion, and it continued to be a temptation afterward. Paul mentions three sexually-laden terms. First, impurity. It's a word that comes from the Old Testament sacrificial system. Certain animals were said to be impure. As well, if someone touched something that was impure, they became impure, and they were to be kept from worship. See, in the New Testament, the word impurity is almost always put together with sexual sin. Romans 1.24, speaks of God giving people over to the lust of their hearts, which it calls impurity. The person's body becomes defiled through sexual sin. And so impurity is sexual sin, but it really speaks of the defilement of the whole person. The second word Paul uses is sexual immorality. The Greek word there is porneia. It speaks of any kind of sexual act outside of heterosexual marriage. It includes prostitution, homosexuality, premarital sex. It speaks of adultery, bestiality, and a whole host of other sins after that. And then the third word Paul uses is the word translated as sensuality. The sensual person lacks the ability to restrain his or her bodily urges and exercises sexually licentious behavior. It speaks of an eagerness for sensual pleasure. Paul might even have in mind here some of the religious orgies that occurred in the temples. We're reminded of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6-9 and following, where, among other things, Paul says, Don't be deceived! Neither the sexually immoral nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, among other things, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so Paul has been afraid. The faithful pastor always is. A faithful pastor knows that there are sins that cancel out faith. He said he's aware of a number of these sins earlier, and he is also aware that some had not repented. And that's what faithful pastors do. They work hard so that sins are abandoned and righteousness is embraced. Clearly, if that's what God wants pastors to pursue, it's also what God wants each of us to pursue.
0: John, I think this was a great message, and I think it helps us think through the idea or the confusion as to what the primary role of a pastor ought to be.
1: Pastors are called upon to teach and preach the Word of God and to be so involved in people's lives that individuals know what Christ wants of them and can be involved in helping them to be all that Christ wants them to be. And that, of course, means that warnings against uh, sinful behavior, um, which Paul has here in this in this passage, should be a part of that. Um, we need to be clear with individuals that, that without holiness, no one will see God. So it's a helping, discipling process.
0: Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Price of Victory, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. I wanted to share how blessed and encouraged we are that God is continuing to use this ministry to impact the spiritual lives of so many through faithful Bible teaching. Recently, we received these words of encouragement from a listener. As I was listening, my heart was filled with much excitement, joy, peace, and encouragement. Thank you for teaching us the Word of God. And another listener wrote, Thanks for these blessed words, Dr. Newfeld." As a Bible-studying student, it's encouraging to hear this type of message. Thank you to both of these supporters and all who welcome our Bible teaching into your home. Make sure to check out all the ways Back to the Bible Canada can support you in your spiritual journey. For more information or to give support, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit
1: backtothebible.ca.